Hello and welcome to the next episode of our Tilney Investment Podcast. I'm Sam Myers, an investment director based in Tilney's Liverpool office, and I'm talking with Ben Seeger-Scott, our head of multi-asset funds. In today's podcast, we'll take a look back at market performance in October before focusing on central banks and what changes to monetary policy we might see in the coming weeks and months in the face of elevated levels of inflation. We're recording the podcast from our homes today on Tuesday, the 2nd of November. Before we begin, here's some important information. Nothing in this recording is intended to constitute advice or recommendation, and you should not take any investment decision based on its content. Any opinions expressed may be subject to change without notice. Remember that the value of investments can fall as well as rise, and that you may not get back the amount you originally invested. Past performance should not be considered a reliable indicator of future returns. Different funds carry varying levels of risk, depending on the geographical region and industry sector in which they invest. You should make yourself aware of these specific risks prior to investing. If you're unsure about the suitability of an investment, or if you need advice on your specific requirements, you should seek professional financial advice. Hello, Ben. Um, It was another positive month for major equity markets in October, with the US setting new all-time highs yet again. Can you talk us through what's been going on? Uh, absolutely, and as you rightly highlight, um, October was actually a bit a bit of a ma- uh, bounce. So we we've talked previously. There's been a little bit of uncertainty creeping back into markets, um, particularly as that we've had the the roll off of furlough schemes, business continuity loans, basically all of the schemes put in place to support through through the COVID crisis, uh, and that caused some concerns uh, along with inflation. Um, but as we've sort of been highlighting, one of the main challenges is you get these periods where markets flip-flop between fear and greed, between worrying about um, certain aspects, but then looking back at the fundamentals that, that still look actually pretty solid. And on that basis, you know, equity markets had a, a pretty pronounced um, bounce and a strong rally through October. US obviously led the way. You highlighted it hitting fresh sort of all-time highs. Uh, US equities and European equities both up about 7% on the month. The UK lagged a little bit, but still gained 4%. And obviously, the UK did relatively well fairly early on, um, just because it has a lot of oil and gas producers, and they had a bounce with the the, the pushing higher of energy prices. Um, So lagging a little bit, about 4%. And emerging markets made a positive return, but only 1.5%. And and EM continues to, to struggle a little bit. We've also seen government bonds uh, have, have really bounced around. They've been selling off through sort of the latter part of this year. And really what's happened with government bonds has been an interesting story throughout this year that maybe we'll touch on in another uh, another podcast. Um, overall, government bonds were a little bit weaker, but they did tighten off some of the, the more acute weakness we saw partway through the month. And what it looks like, we often talk about government bond yields, yields move in the opposite direction of prices. Uh, So when yields go up, prices go down. And what we're now seeing, if you look at benchmark rates, typically we look at the 10-year. 10-year government bond yields, they're now above 1%. They're sort of trading in a 1% to 1.2% range, whilst over in the US, they're trading in a 1.5% to 1.7%. So clearly a lot of dynamics. As I said, they are marginally weaker, but they seem to have found a relatively short-term trading range and bouncing around in a, in a range that's higher than it was at the start of the year, but really trying to figure out what central banks are likely to do. So overall, um, pretty much a, a risk on month back in October. Okay, thanks, Ben. As usual, quite a lot going on. Um, just moving on to central banks. 
We expect the Fed to begin tapering its asset purchase program following the meeting this week. Um, there's been clear communication from them that this has come in, so we don't expect a repeat of past taper tantrums. The meeting of the Bank of England's Monetary Policy Committee on Thursday, however, looks a lot less certain in terms of the outcome for interest rates, although clearly the only way is up from here, especially in the face of rising inflation. Just a quick reminder to listeners that we're recording this podcast ahead of both of these meetings, unfortunately. Um, but do you want to give us your thoughts on how quickly we expect rates to rise both here and in the US? Yes, absolutely. And as you highlight, given it's tomorrow and, and two days hence, there's a lot of scope here to look pretty stupid. Um, but I think both central banks have been quite clear on their signalling. And interestingly, it comes in the wake of the European Central Bank that met last week and gave a little bit of a holding statement. Um, and there's lots of similarities uh, across the central banks. There's been quite significant moves in rate expectations. Recall earlier in the year, no one was expecting rates to lift off until maybe 2023 or even beyond. Now, a lot of those expectations have, have moved uh, considerably sooner. And it's been in the last month we've seen a lot of activity. So central banks are trying to do uh, an awful lot with rhetoric. Um, the, the Bank of England will be particularly interesting, but just to sort of preview what we had from, from the European Central Bank. No action this time, but a bit of a holding statement suggesting maybe some of the market pricing was uh, an, a, a, perhaps a little sooner than the central bank thought. Uh, but you're really seeing central bankers not pushing back against this market pricing. That's important because all the central banks are still suggesting no hikes until maybe 2022, 2023 on their, on their own projections, whereas the market is now diverging quite significantly from those expectations. And because there's always a lag between the central bank's forecasts that tend to come out quarterly and be relatively conservative, it's interesting just to hear how much central banks push back. Sometimes they will come out and say pretty directly, we think market pricing has got this wrong. Sometimes they'll, they'll be a little bit more mute, and that's certainly where, where they are now. Um, and across the board, it looks like in the next 12 months, we'll probably have the start of an interest rate cycle cycle in all three of the what we consider sort of the major central banks, the ECB, so the European Central Bank, the Bank of England, and the US Federal Reserve. And there are some similarities, there are some differences. When you look at the Bank of England, actually they've become um, a, a lot more hawkish, so very likely to start raising rates pretty soon. Um, it, the, the upcoming meeting, so the meeting uh, in two days hence, market surprise, you can look at the market implied probability from various financial instruments. There, the forecast is sort of a 50 to 60% chance of a hike, uh, which is pretty high, not dead cert, but pretty high. And the main debate at the moment seems to be, is it going to be uh, this meeting or is it going to be the next meeting? So pretty high confidence it'll be sooner rather than later. And what the market is, is broadly expecting in the next couple of months will move from what is the sort of emergency lows very near zero. In fact, it's, it's a fraction of a normal hike. So it's currently at 10 basis points, the, the Bank of England base rate. The expectation is maybe we'll have a 15 basis point hike. So go from 0.1 uh, to 0.25. That sort of puts it back onto a, the more normal um, interval. And then the market is expecting quarter point moves, the sort of typical 25 basis point move um, out for the next couple of years. And that's sort of what the, the expectation is for the Bank of England. We also expect the Federal Reserve um, to start uh, to announce tomorrow, so Wednesday, 
and it'll start tapering its asset purchase program, quantitative easing program. That's likely to start by the end of the year. And the anticipation is it'll start relatively gently, but that's just start reducing back those purchases. Uh, but then that will continue through to next year and it will finish probably by the middle of next year. And at that point, whether or not the, the, the market thinks the Fed will hike in sort of 20, late 2022 or maybe early 2023, that's very much, uh, very much in focus. But I think there's a couple of other things to, to draw out here. One interesting difference between sort of two sets of banks, those in Europe, so the Bank of England uh, and the ECB uh, and the US Federal Reserve. The Fed has been very clear in its guidance. It's been clear that it wants to finish its, its asset purchase program before it hikes rates. And there's a sense that it needs a little bit of, uh, of clear water. And given how long it will take to do that, that's why the Fed really starts to need tapering now so it can complete next year and it has a little bit of time to, to increase those rates. Both the ECB and the Bank of England have, have clearly signposted uh, they're quite happy to hike rates before they finished their purchase program. So both programs are expected um, to extend sort of uh, into next year. Um, and there's been no indication of any change to that program, though it is expected to come to a natural end. It's worth noting as well, the ECB, Europe, has been struggling with its monetary policy for a long time. It's still deeply negative. It's minus, minus around half a percent. Um, so even as the pandemic uh, emergency purchase program comes to an end by March, if not before, it does still have the ongoing asset purchase program um, that, that's sort of purchasing around 20 billion euros per month. So that's going on in the background. But interestingly, the Bank of England needs to be happy to hike rates uh, even while its purchases programs are going on. And we're starting to see that come through uh, more broadly. The one thing I would say, though, um, we're talking obviously a lot of when they go to hike rates. Is it going to be this meeting? Is it going to be next meeting? That's what the market's talking about, and that's clearly a point of interest. In terms of investment strategy, though, the exact timing is perhaps less relevant, as you highlighted sort of at the top. The direction is clearly that yields are going to rise, which means prices we would expect to come under pressure. Interest rates are only going one way. Given the longer-term nature of the way we run investment strategy, frankly, it doesn't matter if they do it this month, next month, or early next year. It's clear that's the cycle that they're going on. And we've been talking consistently throughout the year, particularly the Fed, the Fed we expected them to start tapering towards the end of this year. Uh, and that's exactly where they are. What's most interesting, it's not just the, the, the point movement at the moment, it's the start of the cycle. If you look on a three-year hence view, current pricing suggests that UK rates will probably be a little bit above 1% in three years' time. US probably around one and a half, and Eurozone will be back just above zero. And that comes after a decade outside the US, where we've had interest rates really nailed to the floor. So that's that's going to be an interesting dynamic to, to watch unfold. Okay, thanks, Ben. I mean, clearly, um, there's been a change in the market's expectations in, in the pace of rate rises, as you've quite rightly said. Um, what what's brought that forward so much in the UK? You know, what why why are we rate rise raising rates so much earlier than we initially expected to? Well, I mean, in in a word, it comes down to inflation. Of course, it's not entirely that simple, but that's that's a major contributing factor. Um, all of the central banks have consistently highlighted that inflation, particularly the spike in inflation, is is transitory. And I think, you know, broadly, long-term listeners will be aware of our view on this, which is, yes, it probably is transitory, particularly the spiking we're seeing at the moment driven by very high energy prices. 
you get these base effects, which means very low prices this time last year, whilst we're in the grip of the pandemic, compared to more normalised prices this year, gives a sort of automatic um, increase that then fades. But also the idea that it's going to be a little bit more persistent because we had this supply glut as everything sort of shut down last year. There was no consumption. It was for, enforced by governments to basically stop consuming, lockdown, closing all of the shops, etc. So you had too much supply. But now as we try and reopen, consumers are, are pretty buoyant. They've got a lot of cash in the banks from their enforced savings. Wages are starting to creep up. And there's still all these supply bottlenecks, not just in energy, which are to, to an extent resolvable, but things like semiconductors, chips, there, there are all sorts of supply bottlenecks. And those are sort of extending on. It'll take a while for those to resolve. You need to get factories back up to production. You know, you need to get earlier productions. These are quite fragile supply chains. It'll take a while to, reserve, to, to resolve those bottlenecks. And that's what the central banks are now starting to say, that even though it's transitory, it might persist for a little longer. It may take a year or so to get all the factories back working as uh, as efficiently, as effectively as they were. And it's that fact that it might be a little bit more persistent that's causing some of these shifts. And what the central banks are most keen on is not to be behind the curve. We've already highlighted they're happy to have inflation possibly a bit above target. Our consistent view uh, has, has been... Inflation for the next sort of three to five years will probably be in a range of between two and four percent, so above target, but not at emergency levels. So we think it probably will dip from the very high levels, but still persist a little bit above target. And I think central banks want to start normalising interest rates so they're not too far behind the curve. But remember, if you're an, if you're a central bank, one of your key tools to try and control the economy is increasing and decreasing interest rates. And the problem that the Bank of England, the ECB, had over the last few years, when the crisis hit, interest rates were already on the floor, so they had nowhere to go except unconventional monetary policy, which is not the most reliable of tools. So I think it's a combination of wanting to increase rates, ideally into strength, and that's what we're seeing, um, hiking into a recovering economy. Central banks want to get back to a little bit of normalisation. And even if it is transitory, you know, this backdrop of inflation leaves central banks with little room to manoeuvre. And that's worth remembering. So I think when you have inflation relatively low, anytime there's a wobble in markets and the economy, central banks can pretty safely inject stimulus either through cutting interest rates or doing QE, what's often called the green span put. The central markets know any problems, the central banks will ride to the rescue. But when you have inflation um, above target uh, and running a little bit warm, that does limit their, their room to manoeuvre. So for all those reasons, I think they're keen to start increasing now. And it's those infl- inflation expectations that have shifted quite significantly over the last month. Okay, thanks for that, Ben. Well, I mean, you've, you've talked a little bit about how bond markets are likely to react to policy tightening. It's quite a mechanical um, reaction. Um, how about the other, the other asset classes that we invest in, and I guess in particular equities? Yeah, absolutely. As you say, Core government bonds are probably an area to to uh, avoid for the time being, bearing in mind life isn't always that simple because there's the difference between expectation and uh, and reality. But you're right, we, we tend to avoid government bonds. We take exposures elsewhere within fixed income. In terms of equity, the outlook is, is interesting. I think there are a few headwinds, particularly if you look at valuations. Markets look uh, a little bit pricey at the moment. And at the same time, we're seeing some liquidity 
coming out of the market, particularly as, as uh, central banks start withdrawing some of that loose monetary policy that historically has just put money into the system. So some of those more market technical elements are challenged. But against that, as I said, if central banks are hiking into strength, that's not a bad position to be in. What you don't want is uh, the, these sort of stagflationary arguments we don't think is going to come to pass because core economic growth is robust. What people worry about, if you have high inflation but low growth and central banks are almost saying, sorry, I've got no option but to hike interest rates because of inflation, obviously that, that's, that's broadly negative. But if as a central bank you say, look, the economy is doing well, GDP growth is strong, and as we're seeing at the moment, wages are starting to go up, but corporations are doing pretty well. They've got strong uh, profit margins. They're able to pass through a lot of this inflation and defend their margins. Uh, cons- consumers remain pretty pretty buoyant um, for all, all the reasons we, we, we just talked about. So against that backdrop, the fundamental economic drivers look pretty robust. So within that, it's still positive for equities. Now, you may see some, some change of leadership, particularly those areas of the market, particularly the most more aggressive, growthy parts of the market, they tend to do very well when interest rates are low. Largely technical reasons, you have a, you discount earnings in the future based on prevailing interest rates. And as they go up, the future value or the current value of those future earnings drops. So it can be a little bit of a drag for those companies that you expect to have higher earnings in the future because they're discounted more. But against that, some of the more cyclical areas can do relatively well. Uh, financials, obviously, banks and, and others make their make their money on the difference between short-term interest rates, which is you know what, what they pay on most people's savings, and longer-term rates, what they receive on uh, longer-term loans like mortgages. So when you have those those net interest margins potentially increasing, they can do relatively well. And other cyclical areas. Um, so some of the, the the miners in the short term might have a bit of a fill-up, while some of those areas that are more growthy may come under pressure. So you could see a, a little bit of a rotation from growth to value. That said, that's a very difficult uh, style rotation to, to time. And we've seen those two dynamics switch quite a lot over the last 18 months. So I think it could well be bumpy. Um, a lot of these supports coming out means it's not a, a, a dead cert, and you may see um, some some undulations in the market. But I think that's to be expected. And I think that's a sign of a healthy economy so, or a healthy market, certainly. So I think there's you know, still reasons to be positive. Fundamentals are good. Some of the market technicals turning a little bit. Um, but I, I think the outlook for equities is still uh, generally pretty positive. Okay, thanks, Ben. So very much a case of um, mind your eye and um, know what know what you're investing in. Um, well, thanks for talking us through that. Um, I just wanted to, in the final part, just move to something a bit more general but also topical. Um, there's obviously the COP26 summit up in Glasgow this week. Um, there's little disagreement that significant action is required to slow the pace of climate change. And the commitments made by leaders at the summit will shape longer-term trends in investment markets. As a signatory to the UN's principles for responsible investment, Tilney's committed to incorporating environmental, social and governance factors into its investment process. And I think the result of this that we're seeing across the industry is that sustainable investing is becoming more mainstream. But is it still the case that, as it was historically, investors have to choose between their ethics and potential investment growth, or is it possible to have both? Uh, I think it's a really interesting area, and obviously uh, an area that we, we look at very very deeply here at Tilby, uh, both in terms of sort of dedicated 
uh, ESG uh, environmental, social and governance strategies and in terms of the broader investment process. And I think the industry has also come a long way over the last few years, particularly the last three or four years, it's been building for, for a decade or or more. And a lot of it is about getting uh, getting a deep understanding what ESG means, what impact you can have. Some of it is around divesting from companies with, with particularly um, poor track records, those are particularly damaging to the environment, but also it's around elements such as engagement, stewarding, um, trying to do good, engaging with, with, with companies and, and management and trying to encourage good practices as well as just divesting from, from the worst offenders. And I think as well, the, the investment case has, has shifted over the last few years. It's taken a while, I think, as an industry to get the right people with the right skills able to, to, to pick pick good, good, good stocks and engage effectively. Um, and, and we're now at that point where there are good options available. Um, I think in terms of performance, you take ESG strategies versus the mainstream strategies. The, the outdated now idea that effectively you have to give up some return in order to invest in ESG strategies, I think that that's no no longer valid. If indeed, uh, if indeed it ever was, and one of the things that's really helped with that has been a more societal and industrial shift from bringing a lot of externalities on balance sheets. So now, as uh, governments and authorities around the world, including central bankers, are looking very critically at this, you're seeing regulations. A lot of the carbon pricing and, and other points. The most important, one of the most important factors, I think, is forcing companies to bring these externalities onto their balance sheets. So, if you go back 20, 30 years, investing in very energy intensive companies, all of those problems, the externalities, the damage to the environment, that was just dumped on society. It didn't come back onto the company itself directly. But I think now that we've had a lot of these regulatory changes, legislative changes, forcing those companies that are doing the most damage to recognize it in a business sense is really having an impact and that's enabling i think uh, a, a lot of a, a lot of scope for positive investment returns as well as uh, as well as aligning your your views with esg strategies now performance is likely to diverge at points sometimes that'll be positive sometimes that'll be negative now there will be points when i think energy intensive industries and oil and gas Without perform for, for periods and particularly when you do have rising energy prices that's obviously good for, for oil and gas producers that are also historically don't score particularly highly on, on ESG factors but I think as well through time as these externalities come back on there'll be points that, that ESG as a broad style can do well so it's about divergence rather than uh, rather than good or bad and as always it's most important not just to think in broad strokes but to have the research resource so that you can engage with these companies you can see the ones that have actually good uh, good policies and it's all about sustainability if you are sustainable in sense of uh, being able to operate as we move towards net zero carbon economies if you can invest in those in those right sort of uh, right sort of technologies that means that your earnings are stable it means you're a business that can survive for the long term and investing should always be about finding companies that you can invest in believe in that can be here for the long term so i think the two of those really require uh, a level of esg consideration as well so i think where well, I, I think deciding whether or not investing in the esg strategy um, actually it's about aligning your invested wealth with your with your personal values. I don't think you can, well, I don't believe you can really say that ESG investing is 
naturally superior to mainstream investing in terms of your investment returns. But I think it's certainly you're not being disadvantaged these days by taking ESG strategies. Okay, thanks, Ben. I think I think the the key word there is sustainability, and it's you know almost common sense that you would invest in a company that was sustainable over the long term. So thanks for your insights there. It's it's something that. I get asked by my clients about quite a lot at the moment. So um, I think it's quite useful to uh, provide a bit of background. Well, I think that's all the questions that I had for today. Um, And I'll thank you again for your valuable insights. That brings us to the end of this edition of the Tilney Investment Podcast. But don't worry, we'll be back again soon with a new episode. If you have any feedback, questions or comments, please send us an email to podcast at tilney.co.uk. Thanks very much for listening. 